welcome to Photo Geek Weekly, episode 119, recorded on August 20th of 2020. Lots of 20s there. Uh, this is the Photo Geekery podcast. I'm your host, Don Kamarechka, and uh, I spend time throughout my week reading photo geek news. It could be techie, it could be legal, it could be enforcing our copyrights, it could be historic, um, but it's all stuff that we can sink our teeth into as photo geeks. And with me today uh, as a guest is, is a man that I, I admire both for his photo geekery and his backyard cooking skills. Um, with me today is Joseph Lenashki, aka Photo Joseph. Uh, how you doing, sir? I am suddenly hungry, Don, now that you mentioned backyard <laughs> cookery. I think we may have to end this early so I can go fire up the queue. Yeah, well, I've seen some photos you've been posting on, on Twitter about, uh, you know, just your smoking and, and your grilling. And whenever I see those images, I'm like, damn it, I need, I need to learn how to operate a smoker. Oh, it is uh, it is a true a true pleasure to work with. It's so much fun because it's one of those things, you know. I, here, I'll, I'll relate it to photography and to the type of photography you do, where the end result of what you create, specifically thinking about your snowflake pictures, take a long time. They take a oh, lot yeah. of effort. Sometimes take a lot of research. They take a lot of patience. And at the end, you hopefully get something that is absolutely exquisite. Smoking is like that. Some things smoke in just a few hours, but the best, the best things to smoke can take upwards of 24 hours to do. And at the end of all that patience, all that babysitting, all that nurturing, all the research you did going into it, 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 it might not turn out that great. It happens. <laughs> it happens. Well, especially if like, you're just starting. <laughs> but yeah. once you get into it and you start making something beautiful, it is it is a beautiful thing. And that comes off the smoker and everybody's happy and it's just and it's just wonderful. I, I, I have really no excuse because I have a an more than a century old apple tree in my backyard that I prune extensively in um uh in, in the late winter time so that it mm. stays kind of low to the ground and everything. And I just have massive amounts of apple wood that I just throw to the curb and it's taken away by some recycle mm. truck. So uh for shame. For shame, For but shame. Uh, <laughs> photographically, um, love to have you here to talk about some stuff. I know you've been. Wait, I thought this your... was a barbecue show. Wait, what? <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, we, we might do something on barbecue geekery in the future because there is a whole geeky science to cooking and brewing and all sorts of things. Um, but we're here for photos. And so on the photography side of things, uh, what have you been keeping busy with? I know you've been working on a, a new studio, right? Well, yeah, we're doing a bit of a rebuild. This is kind of a constant, it seems. It, you know, if I think back over the last, I think, eight, nine years or so that I've been in this space, I've seemed like I'm always in a constant state of rebuilding something. <laughs> but this time, I really, really am doing a lot. I had built this big space that was kind of a live broadcast studio space uh, two and a half years ago or so. And I just kind of, uh, I don't want to say outgrew it, but I just needed a change. Various reasons I decided to tear it down and build something else. And that has been, was supposed to be a couple week long project. It's been going on for like a month and a half now, but it's almost done. It is almost done. So I've been uh, spending far give, too give much time Give us a nice virtual tour of that. Yeah. I, I just, I take us, take us on a tour. As soon as it's done, I would just love to see the behind the scenes and the decision-making process of why you did certain things the way you did and why they sure. weren't good enough to begin with. <laughs> I don't know about the not good enough to begin with because it probably was. It was just a lot of it's just this change for the sake of change. But ultimately, what the very, very short version of a very long story is that 
I had what I'd been using for my live broadcast space for a couple of years, and I actually got booted off of YouTube Live. Uh, any regular viewers of mine know that story. Um, basically, that happened because I was simulcasting an Apple keynote, which I had done for many, many years, been doing the same thing, simulcasting it with a um, like an MST3K style overlay. I was literally a shadow in the corner making fun of or just talking over the video. And I've always done that. There's never been a problem. Well, the last major, well, not last, you know, it was last September. Yes, it was the last iPhone launch. I was doing like I always did and my show got cut off and I got this big copyright violation thing on my YouTube channel. And I went, oh, okay, well, I guess I can't do that anymore. And I deleted the video. And then I realized about a week later that I had actually been banned from live streaming. When and you get one copy strike, that's what happens. Um, they'll they'll kind of they'll start to limit features, right? Yeah, exactly. They pretty much cut you off at the knees. And I went through and I'm going. What I did was fully legal. So I reached out to them. I said, "This is legit. It was a um, not a parody. I forget what they call it, but it's anyway. It's, I'm not stealing it. I'm adding my own flavor to it. So it was fine. And they said, "Okay, we'll just show us the video." And I said, well, I deleted it as soon as you copyright striked it. And they said, oh, well, if you deleted it, we have no access to it. So we can't verify what you're saying is true. Therefore, the block holds. And I was off the air for three months. And over the course of those three months, obviously, I still wanted to do YouTube stuff. Everything I'd done, almost everything I'd done before that was live. So I switched over to doing recorded content, edited content. And I learned very quickly that that just performed a lot better. And so my focus became that instead of live. And I stopped using that live space. So now I've rebuilt it into something else, which actually will get used for live as well. But it's being rebuilt into a space that is more a, a edited, a pre-recorded edited uh, shooting space. Yeah, my my studio is not a, a shooting space at all, like not for shooting video. I, I can do it there, but it's designed for me to just have a bunch of random plastic tables and set up experiments and concepts and shoot and right. then leave that one alone, move to the next one. Because that one, I might have hit a snag and that roadblock needs an obscure piece of gear from eBay to overcome that's going to ship from the <laughs> Ukraine. Uh, and so that's sitting off in the corner while I work on other things. And by the time, you know, three days go by, every table is full of some half done experiment. Uh, and then I've got to shoot a video in this room and I'm like, yeah, it's, uh, it's not going to happen. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah it's, it's really helpful, at least for me and my own kind of the way that I like to work is very helpful to have spaces set up that are semi-permanent and, you know, nothing's permanent, right? Everything changes, everything evolves. But if I have spaces that are largely permanent sets that I can just step into and do something and step out of that, this saves a lot of time and it saves a lot of kind of brain power of trying to figure out how to set something up. And anyway, so that's what I've, that's what I'm doing right now is setting up that. And once that is done, I will have four hot sets in the studio for different types of work, different types of video projects, which is pretty great to have to, to be able to walk in cameras, are there, lights are there, just turn everything on and start rolling. Awesome. Awesome. I, I look forward to maybe collaborating with something in the future. I know that I think I was, we, we did something way back when uh, on one of your live broadcasts and uh, sure. it was, it was pretty well received and you've been building up a pretty awesome audience. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, let's get into the stories. Uh, du jour. We have, uh, I, I, this, I, it might be on some people's radar, but it might just be a passing glance, which is why I made it story number one, because I feel like it's pretty important. Um, Google images is adding, um, like when you do a, a Google image search, uh, so images.google.com, they're adding a licensable badge to help photographers sell photos. And I, I have been a, um, 
I don't know if victim is the right word, but my, my copyrights have been infringed left, right, and center, especially for certain yeah. photo because people will find them online. It's off. Oh, it's just in the Google image search. I, I can just take that because if it's on Google, it must be free. Now, that's a very incorrect mentality, uh, legally and I hope morally, but uh, now... <laughs> It was, let's dial it back a little bit, uh, uh, Joseph. Back in um, uh, 2018, uh, Google removed the view photo button. And later in the same year, um, they also added if you had embedded your copyright and the, the ownership information in the file, it would show that below the photograph as well in order to entice people to not just take stuff because we're saying that it's there. Um, they have to read it from the metadata and it's got to be in the right uh, IPTC tags. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was there. And I thought that was a great step forward. I license my images, most of them. Some of them are limited editions or I I use them in branding and so they don't have a a licensable nature. But what if, uh, what if I could append somehow the metadata of my photograph to include licensing information that would allow Google to put, and it's not just hidden, it will cover um, the thumbnail of the photograph before you click into it and give you licensing details once you do so as another huge barrier to prevent copyright infringement of your work. What, what do you think about this? I think it sounds great. Yeah, it really does. I mean, that's extra work for the photographer to have to put that up, but the including your copyright information is a no-brainer. That should just be there automatically. Your dam should be embedding that on import and on export. So that should be easy. The easy part, this new idea, I I think it's awesome for those who do want to actively license their work. Uh, But what I would like to see is hopefully they have something that comes up and says, this image doesn't have licensing information, but it is a copyrighted image. Here's the contact info that is embedded. Reach out to the creator if you're interested in licensing. Because for me, licensing, image licensing is not something I really do. But that doesn't mean if someone reaches out and says, oh, this photo that you have online, we'd love to use it for this. Of course, I'm happy to license it. That's awesome, you know, assuming that I can. But I'm not going to go in, especially go back to old images and find all these and embed all this licensing info. It's just not worth the time for me. But it would be great if they just popped it up and said, hey, this image is copyrighted. Here's the email address because that is embedded in my in my uh, photos. Uh, Reach out. Well, and, and so th- there's a recommended properties list here, which is the um, uh, IPTC photo metadata uh, that requires some specific fields that I don't even know if I've noticed before, like acquire license page um, and, and other specifics that Google is going to be looking for. And I don't want to have to worry about going through and redoing all of my images to add that information. But this right. is where it gets really interesting is um, you could easily write a WordPress plugin that would go through all of the images on your website, assuming you're using WordPress or any other content management system that allows plugins, uh, things can be adapted, that would uh, give you a, a dashboard for you to click on the images that you indeed own the copyright to and would like to license. And all you have to do is click on the stuff that's already there and append this information to those images that then will be re-indexed by Google uh, at the next go around. And, uh, and, and I think that this should be something that's provided, like take some of the membership dues from PPA or PPOC here in Canada um, and hire a programmer to write that plugin and give it to the world. Um, sure. I think that's what we need. Yeah, that sounds good. You have to make it easy for the creator. I think at the end of the day, most people want to do the right thing. 
And the easier we make it for them to do the right thing, the more likely they are going to. Now, people will always still steal an image no matter what. They'll take a screenshot and clone out the watermark if there is one and do all those fabulous things. You can't stop them. But my dad used to say, you know, locks on luggage, they keep the honest people honest. Nobody, a lock on your luggage and your suitcase is not going to keep somebody out who really wants to be getting what's in there. But, you know, it keeps that five finger discount from happening that, Oh, that was just kind of sticking out of the suitcase a little bit. I'll just take it. It just, it helps. It just helps. It it does. And, and I think that a lot of people genuinely want to be honest. Uh, they, they, they don't know that they're doing something wrong. Now, ignorance is not a defense, mind you. Right. Um, and so this level of, um, of information presented to people prevents ignorance, um, where it's more of a, uh, it, it's harder to say, Oh, I didn't know I couldn't do that. Uh, and especially right. from a legal perspective too, uh, when there is a direct option to license an image and yet you still steal it, then there might be some legal remedies. I- I'm not a lawyer to figure out what that would be. I know that there is, uh, you know, if you modify the copyright management information, CMI uh, in the US, or we call it slightly differently in Canada, rights management information, RMI, um, there's different remedies under the Copyright Act uh, to, uh, to, to solve this uh, sort of in your favor if people are, are going to that length. I don't think that there is... And again, not a lawyer, uh, anything that would uh, be enhanced by this from a legal perspective, because ignorance is already not a defense. Um, But I think that it would stop people from taking stuff without permission and have more people start asking for permission, because I don't mind licensing uh, at least most of my images. But if somebody takes it and I've got to send that to my lawyer then they're going to pay a heck of a lot more than if they came to me in the first place. And yeah, instead of, of shaking somebody's hand, although we're not really doing that much anymore these days, uh, <laughs> and, but instead of the proverbial handshake and saying, pleasure doing business with you, I've now, you know, potentially made an enemy uh, out of somebody that I really don't even know. And and I, I just right. don't like that mentality. Um, and, and that kind of brings up to a, a follow-up copyright-related story. Uh, by the way, this thing uh, we were just talking about from Google, it's in beta right now. Uh, and I don't know if that means it's widely available in every country. Um, but uh, there will be a link in the show notes at photogeekweekly.com uh, that will give you the Petapixel article that we were first talking about, but also the developers.google.com link that shows you all of the, um, the keys to make this work, uh, to kind of rev that engine if you want to go and... And experiment and explore if you're geeky enough and inclined to do so. Um, the follow-up story is also copyright related, although it has nothing to do with what Google's doing. Um, but also from Petapixel, a photographer wins a lawsuit against BuzzFeed and sets a major DMCA precedent. And whenever I hear a photographer winning a lawsuit that sets a precedent, you know, I want to throw a little bit of confetti in the air because it just, it (laughs) it means something has happened um, that has benefited uh, all of us in some way. Um, So I'll just read the opening uh, statements here because I think it sums it up really nicely on Petapixel. And I'm not going to go into the minutia of the actual uh, United States Court of Appeals uh, for Second Circuit uh, dryness of legalese language. Um, 
So last week, photographer Gregory Mango won an important lawsuit against online publication BuzzFeed. It's important not because of the payout involved, but because of the precedent set by the court, which ruled that BuzzFeed was liable for third-party infringement of his photo because they removed his copyright information from the image. And actually, that's... That's a bit wrong because in the original post, the copyright information was not in the image. It was below it as a credit byline. Um, and, uh, and so that's, to me, that's really interesting because the CMI wasn't in the image itself. It was in the context of where the image was used and that CMI was still present on the page not on the image, which I think was just absolutely that, that to me is the groundbreaking element here. Um, so, uh, uh, the story began in 2017 when uh, Mangle licensed an image of a man named Raymond Parker to the New York Post. Parker was at the center of a discrimination lawsuit uh, filed against the city of New York, and the Post led with Mango's image, including the, quote, gutter credit uh, below the shot that I was just mentioning. Three months later, a writer at BuzzFeed used the same photo without permission, removing Mango's name and listing Parker's law firm instead. Um, the writer claimed that Parker's law firm had advised him to use the photo, so he pulled it from the New York Post article uh, himself and credited the firm rather than the original photographer. The law firm <laughs> did not recall this, uh, oh, <laughs> funny that, uh, and said it was likely uh, unlikely that they would have done such a thing. And so um, uh, he sued, obviously, and that's why we're, we're talking about this. And the United States Court of Appeals, finally, at the end of all this, um, the amounts aren't huge, but uh, they awarded him uh, $3,750 in statutory damages for copyright infringement, $5,000 uh, in statutory damages for violating the DMCA. This is where I just, I lose my faith in society. Um, and quote, reasonable attorney's fees <laughs> to the tune of over $65,000 uh, and $1,800 in costs, which are probably filing fees and things. So the photographer at the end of this gets a win, but man, I should have got into law. <laughs> yeah, seriously, it's always the attorneys that win. It's no matter what. So what do you win. think about what do you think about this in photographers' rights today? Are we gaining rights in the legal system yet losing rights in the court of public opinion? Like wh where are things going? No, I think this is great. I mean, I, I, it reminds me of a story of my own back when oh gosh, we're talking 10 years ago now, but I had taken some photos uh, for Boing Boing, I mean that publication. Yep. And they hired me to go take pictures of the uh, is it dis Discovery, which rover is on Mars that went up about a decade ago? Uh, uh, we started with Spirit and Opportunity, and then we went up with Curiosity. Um, curiosity. I think yeah. it was Curiosity. Anyway, I went to the NASA JPL lab and photographed Curiosity. Let's say it was Curiosity. Photographed Curiosity, I went into the clean room, got all dressed up in the bunny suit and all that, and did a bunch of pictures. It was a media day. There was a bunch of media there, and, and Boing Boing hired me to go out and shoot them. But my photos had my copyright my credit and boing boing license the photos well it just happened this story was a big story and those pictures got picked up by a ton of online publications and ran and i got some phone calls asking for permission and uh, i 
didn't get some phone calls asking for permission. They just showed up in places. And the photos that had been published actually had a copyright watermark on them. On the This is, you know, 10 years ago, had a copyright watermark on the photos. And there were was at least one publication, a pretty big one, that literally cropped it out. It wasn't even like, oh, we left it off of the gutter credit. They literally cropped it off the photo. And yeah, that's, that's you know, not okay. <laughs> not okay, right? And, you know... Looking back, maybe I should have been more aggressive about suing them over it or demanding demanding fees for it or something, as opposed to just emailing them saying WTF and they did fix it. But uh, but yeah, having this this actual precedent there to be able to say no no look you can't do this. A lawyer says so. A judge has said so. You can't do this. Uh, that's great. Yeah, and you know th- there are exemptions to the the, the copyright laws. You know, uh, fair use in the U.S., fair dealing in Canada, and so with very narrow qualifications, and you have to hit all the points. You can do something, uh, take something without permission. It requires credit. Uh, it, it can't be like productized or used for profit. Um, but if it's like editorial content and you're commenting on it, sort of like when I read, not really verbatim, but kind of from this Petapixel article, we are discussing that. We are. Dis- discussing the findings, we're mentioning the source, I can tell you that it was written by D.L. Cade, at least that's what it says to me on the website, all of those (laughs) qualifications uh, mean that we can use the words and the creative input of others in order to add to them, just like you did with your YouTube live video uh, that was then summarily squashed. Um, Right. (laughs) But yeah, you, you you were in your rights. Um, but when those rights are uh, mismanaged or misappropriated, then uh, we should take up arms as photographers. Yes. And now we have Absolutely. more power to do so. I've had, uh, I mean, I, I obviously I can't name names for, for settled cases, um, except in circumstances where the infringer expressly said to not have a non-disclosure clause in the settlement. And I won't get into too many details, but one of those people was my own federal government. I mean, it can be anybody. (laughs) So, you know, it's it it can be some mom and pop grocery store. Uh, It can be a record label. It can be a radio station, a news outlet, a government and and everything in between. And and from that point of view, uh, photographers, we need to kind of step up our game a little bit you know cases yeah. like this set precedent that give us the ability to to defend ourselves on a, on a greater basis and there are a lot of copyright lawyers out there that will work on a contingency basis if anybody's listening to this and they need some names in canada or the u.s i can pass them along to you that i've worked with before and that i can uh, i can recommend but um anyhow a win for photographers both with the google images and with, uh, you know, uh, additional uh, legal muscle uh, that we might be able to use, at least in the United States. Now, the next story. This is w- this one I'm really excited about, actually, because uh, there's been some rumors floating around for a little bit, uh, some leaks that have happened. Uh, and just as of yesterday, as we record this, uh, Panasonic has put out an announcement. And this is from DP Review, although I think I've seen it everywhere. Um, that Panasonic will announce via a live stream, which uh, that's interesting uh, right now as well. But uh, it's new Lumix S5 full frame camera on September 2nd. That's only a couple of weeks away. Um, uh, You know, 
it, it's difficult to comment on rumors, especially when uh, Panasonic is a sponsor of mine and, and also of, of yours, uh, Joseph. Um, the rumors were pretty detailed, though. And, and I'm not going to go through them verbatim, and I can't confirm or deny because I've intentionally uh, not gathered that information. Um, but it's looking like this camera is going to be something um, that uh, sort of bridges the gap from the, uh, the trophy camera sitting at the very top high rung with something a little bit lower to bring people into an L-mount system. Uh, I'm curious what your, what your thoughts are on this. Uh, well, my thoughts are extremely well-formed and will remain well-formed in my head because I know too much. <laughs> as as Tell- an ambassador, I actually have had one of these for a while, and uh, so I can't really talk about any speculations, rumors, or anything else. Uh, it's uh, it's going to be exciting, though. I'll, I'll just I'll leave it at that. It is it is definitely exciting. Tell me, and you'll have to kill me. I I hear you. Something um, along those lines, <laughs> <laughs> but. Let's talk in a general sense, uh, not about the the, the Lumix S5, but let's talk about where these mirrorless systems are evolving Uh, because we've had Canon push into their new range of cameras that have had, Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure they're in crisis management mode at this point with the overheating issues. Um, And, you know, I do, have you heard, sorry to derail this, but had you heard that there's now proof apparently that this is a software limitation, that it has been intentionally crippled? the camera is not actually overheating? Uh, well, that's a conspiracy theory that I've heard, but I didn't put any credence to it. Um, no, apparently they've but- done tests. Somebody had, uh, I don't know exactly, accessed some internal temperature readings and verified that it wasn't actually increasing temperature. And even without doing any recording after a certain amount of time, it will basically turn off the recording as if uh, as if it had overheated. Well, Canon has... Overheat. They have set a precedent on this in the past uh, because I, I know um, when I shot with the Canon um, MR-14EX2 ring flash, uh, which is okay. a good ring flash in its own right, but um, it uh, it has an overheating mechanism built in, which I, it's not a bad thing, especially you don't want the hardware to be damaged, and so you stop it at a certain point. Um, of course. But they built, they built it with a numeric counter in firmware rather than an actual temperature sensor. So Mm. it would count up the aggregate output of the flash and associate that with heat in specific conditions and Mm -hmm. assume that it's overheating. So when I was trying to use that camera to photograph snowflakes outside, I'm in minus 20 degrees Celsius weather and I'm getting overheating warnings from my flash that in order to overcome, while the flash is on, I open the battery door, which uh, you know cuts power right away and resets that counter. And then I have to close the battery <laughs> door, but but it also reset every setting that I had that I now have to go in and reset aside <sighs> from custom functions Jeez. in order to shoot the next snowflake. And that was just poor design right from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And so if they did that, this was years ago when they when that came out, if they did that then, um, those same engineers might still work at Canon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess that's one way to look at it. Yeah. 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 So that's, that's fascinating and kind of sad, but anyway, so to get back on track to your, your point of discussion. Yeah. Well, so I was mirrorless. just saying, everybody's coming out with the, the next generation of the mirrorless cameras and, and now we're, mm-hmm. we're beyond the first, uh, volley into this from Canon, Nikon, uh, and technically Panasonic because the S1H came out uh, as sort of a, a second step for them, and uh, the S5, sure. which is going to be coming, and and so we 
we're seeing this um, uh, sort of this pedigree start to be established. These platforms are being developed. They're being solidified. You're starting to see third-party support in terms of lenses and accessories and, and things like that. Which, by the way, a quick soapbox moment. Somebody, I don't care who, needs to make extension tubes for the L mount. I just, I, it doesn't have to be a first party. It could be, it could be Viltrox. It could be uh, Photodiox. It could be anybody. Nobody is currently making extension tubes for the L mount, and it makes me sad. Um, that is surprising. Wow. The only thing that you can do right now is NovoFlex has a set of bellows, um, but bellows are kind of unwieldy when you just want to shift the focus a little bit, uh, and NovoFlex is notoriously expensive. Good stuff. You get what you pay for, but it's not a, a cheap option for most people. So Sure. I didn't realize that nobody had done that. That's interesting. Yeah, they have them for the RF out. mount. They have them for RF. They have them for the Z mount. They have them for, uh, obviously, Sony email. It's been out for a long time. So you've got everything there. Um, it's going to come. I just, whoever whoever puts it out first, you have my money. <laughs> I will I will throw dollars at you to purchase them. Um, and so you at least have one customer. So wh where do you think things are then going to be going, uh, Joseph, in, in terms of looking at the big picture, all companies? Um what is the next step that people are really going to pay attention to, especially knowing that this year is fairly infamous already? <laughs> uh, I think I want to say more than the evolution of mirrorless. I think we're going to it's really time to start seeing the de-evolution of mirrored. I think it's time for those to really start going away. Uh, there's less and less reason to ever need a mirrored camera. There's so many advantages to mirrorless. The the viewfinders have gotten so good in mirrorless cameras that I, I know for me personally, I pick up a mirrored camera and I'm looking through it and I'm kind of, I feel blind. Like, where's all my extra information? Where's all the metadata? Where's the under overexposure? Where is I, all I never stuff? have to chimp anymore, right? Because I don't have to take right. my face away from the, uh, from, from the eyepiece. It's all, it's all right there. Yep, exactly. So I, I think that I think it's time for mirrored cameras to start going away. I mean, there will, you know, like anything, there'll be fringe cases where it's uh, it's still a, a better idea. But for the most part, I think it's time. And mirrored camera, mirrorless cameras have just gotten so good, so good. So that's exciting. Well, and the technology, like you, you talked about the viewfinders at first, you know, I looked through an, an OMD EM1, the first one from Olympus uh, when it was rolled out, and it was atrociously bad. I mean, it was so sure. much worse than an optical viewfinder. Um, you were making a considerate compromise to go that way. And now we've got uh, the A7S III, which has an EVF that is almost the same resolution as the sensor itself right and <laughs> at, we, at some point we might hit parity for that um and whether or not that exists on one camera right now and not all doesn't really matter because it just shows you what that next generation evf is going to be um i don't know if sony makes them all but the, sony does a lot of that tech uh that sure. then gets used in a lot of other cameras by other manufacturers um i, I remember and I, I think i mentioned this before on a podcast that uh, the, the folks at Giga Macro took apart a Canon Rebel, um, and the LCD screen on the back of it was a Sony product. Um, mm. and, and so, you know, just knowing how many of those pieces move around from company to company, if, if it exists from somebody, it's going to be everywhere in a year or so, as soon as the sure. product uh, chains, you know, get, you know, gets cheaper and then something on a higher level goes into the flagships and it all trickles down. Um, what, what's trickling down? 
in terms of usability, in terms of feature set? Is there any dramatic change that you would like to see that would make you a better artist as a photographer that we just don't have right now? Or is it just all a placebo effect? <laughs> well, I'm, yeah, there's there's an interesting question. That's a whole other discussion, whether whether any of this actually makes us better photographers. But I will say that as cameras get better and more enjoyable to use, you are more likely to use them and ergo become a better photographer just because you're out doing it. I know that when I made the switch to mirrorless, one of the things that got me really excited was the fun factor. I enjoyed shooting. We're talking you know, years and years ago, my first mirrorless cameras, which was an Olympus OMD uh, something, something. Um, it was fun. I really enjoyed it. There was such cool tech in there, things that didn't exist in mirrored cameras that I really enjoyed the process. And so I found myself shooting more just for my own enjoyment outside of client stuff, but just shooting more because it was fun. It kind of reinvigorated me for photography for the sake of photography. And anytime that's happening, you're going to get better at it. Like anything else, right. the more you do it, the better you get. So, um, so I'll say that for it. Um, you know, whether it actually makes you any better or not is because there's a feature who knows maybe it gives you maybe it inspires you to do something you wouldn't have normally tried right like uh like olympus cameras have a live view a live what, a live bulb or something like that function where if you're doing a long exposure say a minute long exposure and you're doing light trails or something like that and you mm -hmm. actually see the photo building up over time it's a really cool feature Right. And that having that feature would inspire you to do something might inspire you to do something you wouldn't normally do. To, to I, I'm really kind of hoping. Light trail, light painting. Okay. Uh, yeah. Well, because you get to see it in real time. You don't have to wait and then right. totally guess. Uh, so, um, you know, of course, Olympus has been sold off to uh, to a company that uh, we don't know what they're going to do with them right now. They have a track Sadly record no. of uh, of separating up assets and just sending them off and profiting on yep. on their purchase that way. Um, yep. I hope that doesn't happen. Uh, but I'm looking at this chart uh, on Fuji Rumors, and they said that the digital camera market share 2019, Canon is king. Fuji is a stable fourth. They're biased, and I'll explain why in a minute. Um, Nikon is falling, and Olympus is out. Um, these numbers came from Techno System Research, um, and uh, they're a major marketing uh, and research company in Japan. I, we don't know what secret sauce they've come up with these numbers from, um, but Canon is at a solid 45.4%. Sony is less than half that at 20.2%. Nikon comes in third at 18.6. Those are the three bigger players in the double digits. Uh, fourth place is actually tied with Panasonic and Fujifilm, with Panasonic uh, at 4.7%, with, uh, uh, with no decline, but Fuji at 4.7% with a 0.4% decline. Um, Sony has gone up and Canon has gone up, while Nikon has gone down and Olympus is off the map. Um, so if, if you think about this, I mean, you've got, you've got the opportunity, uh, for Sony was never like one of the old guard camera companies. They've done amazing in terms right. of their market share in, in the last little while to, to, to be right now in second place, usurping Nikon, uh, at least by this one, uh, by this one study. So if that were true, then, uh, anybody coming in with a great product can make a huge difference here. Uh, 
Yeah. And I, I'm really hopeful, uh, this is me just wishfully thinking, that uh, the patents that Olympus holds for things like handheld uh, multi-shot high-res modes and uh, and that uh, see-it-as-it-comes uh, long exposure bulb mode type of thing, which I'm, I'm certain that they're patented. Nobody has them except for Actually, Olympus. no. Actually, it's not. So that feature does exist in... One of the, I think GX9, is that right? I have the GX9. I, c- I, I could be wrong. Dude, there is one of the Micro Four Thirds mirrorless cameras, newer ones, that has that feature in it. I'm going to um, look that up. Uh, I, I don't have I don't that info in front that of me. Body. But. Yeah, whichever body it is that has it, I don't have it, that body, so I haven't played with it, but that's what I've read, been told, whatever. It's So it is out there in one of our cameras. So there's not, it's not patented. Um, well, it, well that's not, said? that's not true. It could be patented. In fact, I'm certain that it is, but whoever owns the patent is willing to license it, uh, is basically what that means. It could be, or maybe yeah. it's just approached a completely different way, right? That's often a true. way around yep. a patent is a patent because patents have to be very specific. You achieve the, the pa- patent is typically not for the end goal. It's the process of getting there that is yeah. patented. So yeah, I, I was, I was reading different. patents for ultraviolet transmission lenses the other day to figure out what they were made of. <laughs> And uh, there was this one really weird element in a coastal optics 60 millimeter lens that used this uh, super strange material. If I can try to find out what that is right now, but I I won't be able to find it quickly enough. Um, But it was made of like uh, uh, materials that I can't even remember had existed. Um, It was, here it is. Uh, it's, uh, S L A L 18 glass, which consists of boron trioxide, yttrium oxide, silicon dioxide, calcium oxide, and antimony trioxide. There are some weird wow. lenses out there, but when you're making a <laughs> lens, uh, th- th- that was one optic out of the bunch. Um, you have to specify that type of thing, the materials that it's made of, not just the arrangement of things in the patents. You're right. They're very, very specific. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And I found the camera. It is the uh, G90 slash G95. So that'd be the US or North America versus European, versus European version. Um, so the Lumix G90 is called Live View Composite Mode, very similar to Olympus's Live Composite Mode. So I want to see that roll out to more similar. cameras. The more features we have, yeah. the better off we are. And I know Absolutely. very soon uh, you will be able to tell me all about that S5, but uh, I have a suspicion <laughs> It will not be until at least September second. That would be that would be true. So to go back to your original question, though, about what what could be happening, what do I want to see, and so on. I think the next big evolution that I want to see happening in cameras is the the kind of smarts, the kind of AI that we see in smartphones that you see in your iPhone, your Pixel phones, getting those into full size cameras. Can you imagine? I mean, the, the iPhone. And the Android Pixels, whatever, all those phones, the top of the line ones, their cameras are so freakishly good for being this tiny little pinky nail sized sensor. Yeah. They are so good. Imagine taking all of that smarts and putting that into a micro four third sensor, an APS-C sensor, a full frame sensor. It's like, the possibilities are just incredible. And it boggles my mind why we're not already seeing this. And I've been talking about this for years. Why are we not seeing this? I don't get it because it could be so good. Yeah. Well, you know, you, you think about what a uh, what a smartphone is, especially a flagship uh, iPhone or Pixel or Galaxy product. 
And um, you've got companies that are producing them in much, much higher volumes than uh, than digital cameras right now. It's just a different market. Um, and sure. you have the ability to have uh, an open platform for software that runs on it. Plus, you have processors that I, I don't want to say that they're necessarily standardized, but Qualcomm owns a lot of that market right now. Um, and then, of course, Apple with their uh, uh, their A whatever chip they're up to. But they're all ARM based processors. Um and they're, I'm going to say that they have more muscle in those chips than any camera on the market today uh, on a consumer mm-hmm. level, right? And so I, I think t- to myself that part of it is processing power and part of it is open marketplace. If I had the ability to have any additional feature just loaded in as a plugin like I do on my WordPress websites that just add an extra feature and then it just becomes a seamless part of the design to do anything from having a a newsletter to e-commerce and a picture gallery and everything else. Um, We don't have that right now on phones or on on cameras. Uh, We um, Once that is somehow established, and I don't know who's going to do it and why, because you know, really, it's not going to help the hardware sales, at least not initially. Um, but if somebody does that, I think you would have uh, a market for in-camera apps. Um, I think Sony Absolutely. did something like this for Sony a while. Sony did something but- like that, and Samsung did as well. And there was, well, yeah, which their, I don't think uh, it was a very NX good cameras. camera to begin with. Yeah, so it's it's kind of happened in that adding an app, but... You know, if you think about the iPhone or the latest Pixel or whatever, you don't have to. Yes, you can add apps. You can add incredible apps, but you don't have to add an app to get that unbelievable night mode photo, right? That photo yeah. that you're going that How comes the out heck, of the box. Right? It's, yeah, that just comes out of the box. That's these cameras should do that. They should that should just come out of the box. I don't understand why that kind of smart isn't built into it. And yes, it would require probably a much more advanced processor than what's in there. But these processors exist, like you said, Qualcomm and so on. They make these things. They can be purchased. And if that means the camera has to run a new operating system, so be it. Or if it means that the engineers have to write code similar to what's happening on iPhones and Android phones for their own operating system, so be it. But it it has to be I'd like to see the budgets, the budgets that Apple pays for camera-related engineers, both in hardware and in software versus uh, what Sony pays its software engineers, um, right? I mean, the, the, the divide there, I think, is an order of magnitude. Again, I'm guessing. I don't know what those numbers are. Sure. I don't know if they're known. But um, I think that if they wanted to do it and the return on the investment was there, it would be allowed. Um, but I just don't know if that's... Uh, because people that are buying cameras aren't buying... This is our problem. We caused this. They aren't buying cameras because of the quality of the photos that come out. That's on you. That's the photographer from the, you know, the tr- buying a traditional camera space. They're buying the cameras based on the spec sheet and the pixel peeping and the MTF charts and all of these things um, is what we buy a camera off of, not the end resulting image being beautiful as a single word, beautiful, period. And that is a paradigm difference that I don't know if we're able to cross. Well, but that falls into that whole argument of, oh, I I could take that picture if I had that camera. Well, no, you couldn't because you're not a good photographer. It takes a good photographer to make a good photo, but there is still so much that can be done in post, as we obviously know, and you you spend a 
huge amount of time in Photoshop, right? And if a lot of that stuff, not saying what you do specifically, but if a lot of the you know, realistic HDR, hyper real imagery, the low light composited photos that look almost like daylight. If a lot of that can be done in Photoshop afterwards, then it can also be done in the camera in real time and on a sufficient processor. And that's what we're seeing right now. And so I don't see any reason not to start adding those things into full size cameras. Let's hope it happens. But to go back to your point about, oh, if I had that camera, I can take that shot. You can't, but that delusion of grandeur will make you go out and buy that camera, right? Oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean... There is that. Yeah, it, it, it's it's an unrelated element of, uh, of okay, well, that, that must be a good camera because that's a good picture. Thereby, I will go out and buy that camera uh, without having any specs or all of the specs because we don't, Anybody buying the latest iPhone or Pixel device, they don't care how many lens elements are in there. They don't care about exactly how that sensor was designed. Um, they care if it looks good in the end. And that level mm -hmm. of simplicity in your expectations of the device, um, that that's the difference. Um, will we overcome it? I don't know. Um, will we find a way around it? I think so. But I think it might take a few years. Um, Let's talk about another interesting camera. Definitely not a consumer-facing product, but uh, <laughs> I like to bring up these cameras once in a while. From Cine D, they are reporting that Phantom is coming out with the T1340. Four-megapixel high-speed camera has just been announced. Um, and so it can shoot at uh, 2048 by 1952, or if you want it to be, uh, you know, almost the same width, but in a more standard aspect ratio of 1920 by 1080, um, you can get up to 6,160 frames per second in full HD on one of these cameras. Less so if you want to use the whole height, which actually for um, uh, for high-speed stuff, you almost want to for certain things because you don't know where it's going to come into the frame and, and where it's going to exit the frame. You might want to have some cropping ability. And at its full resolution, you got to cut that almost in half down to 3,270 frames per second. But I guess that'll have to do, right? I guess that's pretty... That's not that fast anymore. I mean, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, no, these, these so, cameras are so much fun. They, they are. And it can shoot up to like 13, 113,000 frames per second, albeit that's mostly for measurement uh, tools because the resolution of your video at that point is 640 pixels by eight pixels. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Those it's, are the ones that really... capture the beam of light. That's when that's for capturing a beam of light bouncing through water. Exactly. And so you need to, to measure the distance between the frames to see the, the, the density shift uh, and the speed of light and measure that. But uh, to be honest, though, um, these phantom cameras have always fascinated me. And they're not the only uh, name in the game of these crazy high speed cameras, but they're the ones that I've gravitated towards the most. And I've been um, on set when they've been used. Um, <laughs> it's funny. You talk about... Um, you know, people were originally kind of raising an eyebrow about the Lumix S1H having a fan in it. Um, mm -hmm. Now, obviously, that turned out to be a really good idea based on what's been happening with <laughs> Canon and, and Sony. But if you've ever heard one of these phantom cameras fire up, it is oh, yeah. like you're hearing the jet engine of a plane spin up, albeit you're indoors uh, inside the plane, but it's still an audible noise that is quite distracting. Uh, obviously, these cameras don't shoot sound. 
Right. There's no, not much point in capturing dialogue at 6,000 frames per second. <laughs> so have you ever, ever used any of these cameras? What's the fastest frame rate that you ever shot at? I, I, mean, I have not ever used one of these cameras. I've seen plenty of content out of them. And I've got a buddy who owns one and uh, you know, uses it for a lot of commercial work. That's kind of his thing. But um, no, I mean, for me, it's, I don't know, whatever conventional, you know, 240 frames per second, I guess probably be the fastest that I've shot at just with my own cameras. That's 6,000. That's crazy. That's pretty awesome. It is. And it, you know, that's not as, as, as high as they go. I think it was the, um, the V. Oh yeah. 2640, um, that goes uh, like 66, uh, hundred frames per second or something like a little bit more than that. But let's talk about price because that camera fully equipped cost $175,000 us. Yeah. The, sure. the price is not available right now on, on this new, it's actually a new series from, uh, uh, from Phantom, the T series, which they list things like, um, uh, oh, what were they saying on their website? I really want to bring this back up again because, um, it, it was like, okay, this is, this is like meant to like document atomic explosions or something. Um, <laughs> yeah, it says, I, uh, ideal for outdoor and range environments. Um, 10 gigabit ethernet is, uh, is, is built into this as well now, which is, uh, just fascinating. But uh, if I bring it up the product brief, it says, um, ideal for, um, Oh, they've, they've changed the language. They had like military in, in the, uh, in the description when I was looking at it last. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, uh, so they, they've gone and, and changed their wording on that for whatever reason. Maybe we don't want to know who's actually using these things. Um, right. but I, I just, it's going to be more expensive than anybody can buy unless you are a government. This is something that if you needed for a particular shoot, like a documentary film, you would rent, um, or you'd buy an expensive bottle of whiskey to somebody that you know that has one. And, uh, and that that's your rental fee, right? Or you have a really, really big YouTube channel, like the slow-mo guys, and then you just buy one because that's well, what well, sure. But I, I also think that they've, <laughs> the, the slow-mo guys have tried out a lot of different cameras and they haven't bought them all. Um, but once you've mm. established yourself in that space, um, the footage that you take with one of those cameras becomes promotional material for the person that manufactures the camera. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, and so there, there's a different way in, into that. Um, yeah. This new camera can get outfitted with 144 gigabytes of RAM because they have to buffer so much data coming in that sure. they cannot offload it fast enough to any media. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, a 10 gigabit ethernet connection as an option, 3672 or 144 gigabytes of RAM. I don't know why you wouldn't go all the way. Um, but it's what I also found a lot more expensive, I'm sure they're not putting in cheap RAM in there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, what, what I thought was interesting too, is you don't realize until you think about it and you say, oh, well, that makes sense. Um, is that you can't shoot these cameras at low ISO because your frame rate is so high that so little light can come in per frame that uh, with any consumer available lens, you have to have ridiculously high ISO. So the base ISO in a color version, uh, I don't know if it's this, the cameras available in two different versions or you can switch modes, um, maybe by removing a color filter array. Some of these cameras do that. But the color ISO base level is 4,000. Um, the monochrome base level ISO is 16,000 and they go up for color to 20,000 and mono to 80,000, uh, assuming image quality is, uh, is important and falls apart if you go higher. But, uh, 
just an interesting beast of a camera. I encourage you to really anybody is. listening to to check out the show notes at photogeekweekly.com and, and and take a look at some of the photos. Like even just the photo of the back of the camera, you will see connectors you don't know what they do. And that always fascinates <laughs> me because I've never seen a camera with that many B and C connectors uh, on the back of it in any modern era. And yet here we are. So oh, it's very uh, cool for sure. There we go. Um, now the final story, and this one, I guess we got to, we got to pour one out here. Um, so reported by DP review, uh, Russell Kirsch, the inventor of the pixel dies in his Portland home at the age of 91. Um, from 1929 to 2020. Uh, this man, I didn't know this full story until I, I, I read this. And I, I feel bad. I should have. I should have known the legacy that this uh, this inventor, this creative engineer was able to come up with uh, way back um, in in the 1950s. So um, what, what did, I, I'm assuming you read the story, Joseph? Um, I, you know what? I didn't. I'm, I'm, I'm terrible. I'm a terrible guest. I you're, you're somehow a terrible skipped person. this. Well, I, I will I'm regale you with, with, with what okay, happened please here. Please do. Um, Tell me all about it. So uh, I'll, I'll just read from the article quickly. Uh, in 1951, while still in school, uh, he joined the National Bureau of Standards as a uh, member of the Standards uh, Eastern uh, uh, Automatic Computer Team, the uh, SEAC. Uh, and he was in charge of handling the U.S.'s first programmable computer. And what did he do with it? He made it take pictures. Well, not take pictures, but, um, but to read pictures. And six years later, in 1957, um, he would change the world in a way. Uh, he developed a small five centimeter by seven, uh, by, uh, five by five centimeter uh, digital scanner. And it would, based on the, uh, the input level that it would get back, it would record that a part of the image as either a one or a zero either white or black. Uh, if it passed a certain threshold, if it was white, if it passed a certain threshold, it was black. Uh, and then he would make a purely monochrome image uh, as a result. And he called those squares that he defined as that one or zero bit a pixel. But he didn't stop there. He went further and said, okay, well, what if we changed the threshold level? If we change the threshold uh, to be lower or higher for that one or a zero to be, uh, to be flipped uh, from one to the other, and then we average the results at different thresholds, we can add a gradient to the image. We can make it grayscale and not just black and white. And this was back in the 1950s. Two decades later, the Voyager spacecraft went out and took photos, and they probably used a very similar technology to scan the images uh, into digital signals uh, in the cold of space. And so the, the beginning of photography in a digital construct started uh, when, uh, when, this, uh, when this man, R Russell Kirsch, um, photographed uh, or uh, scanned an image of his three-month-old son, Walden. And uh, that photo is in the article. And uh, you can see the first results of trying to tinker with computers to make pretty pictures um, as a result. But it really became interesting when he didn't stop. He continued to do further research because pixels are, squ are they're square things, right? You know, you, you've got one next to another one and they, they deviate and so on. Um, but they're all a square construct. He came up with an idea for... Uh, non-uniform pixel encoding and using the same amount of information 
And again, take a look at these two images. One is very pixelated. The other one is too, but there's a lot more information that is presented visually for the same amount of data that's being recorded. He never stopped inventing. Now, we never adapted that technology. I haven't seen it implemented in any compression algorithm uh, to date. But the fact is that there is still room to grow. And the person that first figured out how to get a digital image of any kind was still working on this well uh, into uh, the 2000s. Um, that makes me happy. And uh, uh, a brilliant man lost. Um, he's given us a lot. And uh, 91 is a pretty good run. I'll say if I get that old, I'd be pretty darn <laughs> yeah. happy about it. Um, but he didn't stop the uh, the process of learning and inventing and creating, really. And I think we should all learn something from that to just continuously stay creative, uh, no matter what, because there's, we, there's no end to that journey. You know, there's no final destination that says, yep, um, here I am. I can throw the cameras out now. Uh, said nobody ever. <laughs> no, absolutely. You know, it's interesting. I was looking at the pictures that you were mentioning where he has the non-square pixel. And there's this thing. It's so funny. I've never, since this happened, 25, maybe 30, 25 years ago, let's say, I've never heard of it since. But I used to work for this company called, well, it was Meta Creations when the company collapsed, part of that it was Meta Tools, part of that was HSC Software. This is the original creators of Kai's Power Tools. I don't know if you remember those yes. plugins, but I think you're old enough to, yep, absolutely. Um, and somewhere along the way, there was this other app that was part of the whole collection that was based off of something not called Pixels, but Trixels. And the idea behind a Trixel was that instead of a pixel being a block that is a single color, a Trixel is a triangle, as you might have guessed, and each point of the triangle has a color value and the data in between that triangle is drawn as a gradient between those three. So if you think about it, you take an image that is based off of pixels and every square you look at, you cut it into cut it in half into a triangle and you look at the color value of the next pixel over and assign it to one point, go down to the other corner, grab the color value for that point and so on. You convert an image that can be infinitely scaled because there's no square pixels to show up. There's no hard edges to show up. There's no square edges to show up. The triangle continues to grow and the color gradient just gets more filled in more and more with a bigger gradient as it expands in size. Is that, am I making any right. sense? So it, it, it doesn't that pixelate per se. You're not going to be increasing the resolution, but you, Correct. but you would not be uh, showing the uh, the borders between the defects, right? Which now we have all Correct. of the complicated upscaling, downscaling filters in Photoshop and whatever else that try to smooth all of that out when you're changing the resolution. But you wouldn't need any of that with this Trixel right. technology. Right. And I just, I don't know whatever happened to that. It was a thing. I saw it, played with it forever and ever ago. And it's just, it's gone. And, you know, you search for it and Trixels are something to do with Minecraft art apparently now. So, you know, that name's been reappropriated. So who the heck knows? Uh, maybe I'm even misremembering what the name is, but I don't think so. I'm pretty sure that was the, that was the thing. But yeah, well, just like uh, uh, vector graphics in video games, you know, the Vectrex didn't really last for that long. It wasn't a, a scalable thing to, uh, to take, take on Nintendo and, uh, and Atari at the time. But um, wh right. when you're thinking about these, um, uh, these oddities, these new technologies, sometimes they just take off. Um, but right now I think we are so entrenched in the pixel, um, that 
unless there's a reason for us to overcome some limitation that we haven't overcome already, we're just going to stick with these darn pixels. And um, because they're so universally compatible with every device everywhere, back into time and looking forward, um, pixels, uh, the square variety, anyhow, are where we are stuck. But thank you to, you know, uh, uh, I was going to say thank you to Russell A. Kirsch for making the pixels to begin with. Absolutely. And now, amazing, the power of Google. So I had to search. So the company that I, that I was talking about was, like I said, it was Meta Creations. Before that, it was Meta Tools. Before that, it was HSC Software. I don't remember at what point this came in. So I did a Google search, open parentheses, Meta Tools, or capital or Meta Creations, or in quote, HSC Software, two words, close parentheses, and Trixel. And I found an article from Wired Magazine, 1997, talking about it. The company that Meta had absorbed is called Real-Time Geometry. And that's what it is, real-time geometry called Trixels. And now I have to reread this article and see. And exactly you have to yet. send me that link uh, that I can put I that in the show notes because I, I'm i going to enjoy reading that much more than reading uh, patents for lenses. There you go. <laughs> and look, I was nearly 25 years ago, so I wasn't too far off there. Excellent. Yeah, I mean, that, that was at the, the, the birth of the current computer generation. That's when Intel was coming out with the Pentium Pro processors and introducing us to out-of-order execution um, and uh, speculative uh, branch prediction and uh, and all of these wonderful things that have come back to haunt us in the last few years with the Spectre and Meltdown uh, things where that maybe was not such a good idea, but it caught on back then. Um, Trixels <laughs> didn't. Uh, so here Trixels we are. Uh, all right, let's, uh, let's carry on to the picks of the week. Um, if, uh, if you don't mind, uh, Joseph, uh, w- would you uh, go first? I will happily go first. So one of the the joys and benefits of having a YouTube channel that is growing in popularity is companies reach out and ask you to review their products. And, you know, you go on YouTube and you can find a million people reviewing a lot of the same gear because big companies, with big budgets do that. My channel is at a size where smaller companies who the big YouTubers won't touch reach out to me. And sometimes, you know, I get a lot of junk. I get a lot of ring light request, ring light review yeah. request. You know, we're not talking like photography, ring light, strobe ring lights. We're talking about the kind of makeup video, really generic, simple LED ring light. Anyway, so I get a lot of those. But every once in a while, I get something really cool. And I got this one from a company called Viltrox that has made a lens for the L mounts. So this is for the S series cameras. It is a 20 millimeter T 2.0 and T is as opposed to F 2.0. Yep, and for T-stops, those yeah. who, those who, yep, T-stops for those who know, you know, those who don't, um, just to very quickly explain, a T-stop is measuring the transmission level of light, the amount of light that's actually coming through the lens as opposed to an F-stop is measuring the size of the aperture where in relation to the focal length of the lens. And so if you take a 50 millimeter F 2.8 lens and a 100 millimeter F 2.8 lens, while you would think logically the exposure coming through should be identical, it may not be. It could be different, especially lenses from different manufacturers, whereas a T measurement, ideally done properly, is identical. A T2 lens, whether it's a 20 millimeter or a 200 millimeter, T2 is T2. So anyway, so they've made this lens, and this is generally used in the world of cinema, not still photography. So they've made this lens, 20 millimeter T2 lens, that is um, aspherical, it is, so it's very nice and clean on the edges. It has a very smooth focus and declicked aperture. And again, designed for cinema use, you don't want to have a stepped aperture. You want to have it be nice and smooth so you can change it while shooting. And the focus and aperture rings are geared. 
So it is designed to be used on a cinema type camera with a focus control system. A follow and focus device. Only, yeah. Yeah. And, I, and I have one of those. Right. And I, I, uh, I've, I've had to modify some lenses to get those little gears on it. Uh, but sure. I always love when it's an option. Like I bought the, um, uh, the Liowa uh, 24 millimeter probe lens. Uh, they have a cinema version that has those gears on it and, and they're all relatively oh, cool. standardized. So, um, you know, to, to have something like this, this would, I, I don't want to, I don't want to make this seem like this is a video lens. It's a video or a stills lens. It just excels at the video because of certain features, but I've always loved these T-stop lenses and the cinema lenses because they just, they've always seemed to uh, put a bit more extra polish on it that photographers don't need, but don't know that mm. they actually want. Um, is that true <laughs> with this lens? I, yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean, I've only been using it for video work, but yes, um, I would say so. I, I think having the declicked aperture is a great thing because, you know, sometimes when you're shooting stills, you find that some, you need to stop that somewhere between say F4 and 5.6. It's like the perfect exposure is somewhere in between that and having the ability to physically close those aperture rings down to the exact right spot. Yeah, I think that's pretty beneficial. It's pretty useful, but no, I like it. And it's only $500. That's the thing is this is a, a relatively low cost L mount lens that is geared for cinema use. It's very nicely made. It has very good build quality to it. Image quality is very good. I think that overall it's a real winner and getting a lens like this at this price is fantastic. Usually these kind of lenses can tend to go for a lot more. Well, I know uh, we're sure talking 20 millimeters, uh, right. 20 millimeter, nice wide. wide angle lens, uh, at F, uh, or at, at T2. And so a lot of light, wide angle. This could be a great landscape lens. Uh, talking sure. about as a stills could photographer. Could be very could shallow. Yep. Very good for very low light. Good for if you do want to get that shallow depth of field look on a wide angle lens, that's not very common to be able to do. Mm -hmm. So this will definitely give you that. I um, mean, yeah. And if you look at, you know, I know I'm going to say Sigma lenses compared to Sigma lens. Sigma lenses are very good and their cinema lenses are extremely good. Mm -hmm. um, but the cost level of this versus a Sigma that is similar size and aperture is going to be a more order of magnitude different. And so uh, I think it's a, it's a win. It's just awesome. great. Like you said, in the beginning of the show, it's great to see third party companies doing these sorts of things and getting these out there. Well, and I, I love the fact that, uh, you know, this is available in L mount uh, Venus optics has made a number of their macro lenses now in the L mount as well. I still have them with uh, uh, an EF adapter uh, to the L mount that I use, um, but they've just uh, introduced the uh, the Liowa 50 millimeter f 2.8 2x ultra macro APO lens, which is my pick of the week. And um, huh? they actually sent me an early production version of this lens a while back uh, to see what I thought of it, and I threw it on my Lumix GX9. And uh, you know, I I've always been annoyed that. Not everybody, but most macro lenses are made uh, with a one-to-one -one magnification factor, which is where the word macro comes from. I, I get that. But they just stop arbitrarily there, and they don't give any increase in magnification beyond that. And I, well, obviously, I shoot close-up stuff of everything, and sometimes I want that extra reach uh, or that extra magnification. So this goes to a two-to-one magnification on a micro four-thirds camera, which would be the equivalent uh, magnification of four-to-one on a full frame camera, uh, which is, you know, what I, I, I mean, I interchange between micro four thirds and full frame, but um, to have a lens that compared to my full frame equivalent can focus to infinity on one side 
and manual focus as it may be, uh, to focus up to the equivalent of four to one on a full frame camera in terms of magnification. No other lens has really done that before. And uh, so I was curious to play with it. And I tested it at some of the extremes and just using it for general macro work. I tried it with water droplets and ultraviolet fluorescence and some outdoor flower photography and things. And it performed really, really well. Um, at a price point of $399 US. And you can get that right from uh, from Venus. Uh, Venuslens.net is, is the website where Laowa has their uh, their lenses. I, I was overwhelmingly... Uh, you know, happy with it. But like, of course, you've got automatic aperture uh, control. So you don't have to worry about your viewfinder or your, uh, your electronic viewfinder becoming incredibly dim. Um, or not, uh, I'd not dim. Um, uh, I'm using the optical terms, but low frame rate, because not a lot of light is coming through. And so it's going to slow mm-hmm, things down. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you're not shooting, the apertures are, are wide open. Um, there was some pincushion distortion that I noticed when I was testing. And it was a, an early production model that might have changed, even if it didn't. I only noticed it when I was testing. I never found any flaws to that end when I was actively shooting with the lens, which is really the more important metric. Um now, do I love my Leica 45 millimeter macro? Oh, yes, I do. The autofocus <laughs> is, uh, is is a huge winner there. I use that as a portrait lens quite often. Um, and the image sharpness corner to corner on that lens, I don't think I found another one that is quite uh, quite as good. It's also a lot more expensive um, than mm-hmm. this, uh, this Lyoa 50 millimeter lens. Uh, so check this out. If you, if you like macro photography, uh, or you want to dabble in it and you don't want to spend oodles of money, three ninety nine is a fairly affordable price, just like your pick too, Joseph, uh, uh, to experience something new and to have a little Absolutely. bit more flexibility to say, Hey, I want to push closer, but you don't want to have to get out of the moment and, you know, throw on extension tubes or do something else crazy, like, you know, close up filters or a different lens. Um, this, this has a lot going for it. And, uh, so I, I had an early copy of it, so maybe I'm, I'm biased that, um, uh, that, that it performed well compared to what the full production one is, but they never go backwards. They only get better. And I think that there's maybe some firmware tweaks or, uh, some various little fixes that'll make it an even better product. So there you go. Um, and, uh, they even used some of my images on their website, which I was very happy about. Uh, I didn't intend for them to do that. Uh, we came up with a deal after I had taken them and uh, after I was experimenting. So that was fun. Oh, cool. So this wasn't a copyright violation experience. This was a, you showed them and they licensed the photos from you experience. Yes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> good, 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 good. Glad to hear that. Glad to hear that. Hey, I want to yeah. throw out one more pick sure. and this is partially because I'm, I'm brand new introduced to them. Um, they just reached out to me to see if there's something we could do together on my channel. And I want to see if you have any experience with them. It is a used photo and video gear online store marketplace uh, called Gear Focus. And it's all about, it's a place for you to sell your used camera gear and buy, obviously used camera gear. I'm kind of like, instead of eBay, instead of eBay that sells everything, it is a online marketplace specifically for buying and selling used camera gear. I was wondering if you had any experience with this. It seems I, I've good. not heard of uh, of them specifically, but I do know that that's not the first time this has been done. I, KEH is another good example where they uh, can have some of their own products, but I believe they have a marketplace thing where you can just list your own things. I haven't been to KEH mm. in probably eight or nine years. So I'm not sure exactly how that that's evolved. Um, but when, when I go to eBay, um, I do have some protections uh, when I'm buying something uh, through PayPal, but I also like there's people that scam 
all through that platform, no matter what protections yeah. that they have. And eBay right. and PayPal, those are big entities. So what I would worry about with somebody that is a smaller upstart is uh, the ability to limit fraudulent activity or remove it entirely, because we're talking usually about bigger ticket items that have sure. really good resale value to a pawn shop or something that you can easily just fence if you were able to somehow uh, obtain it uh, you know, through less than legitimate means. Sure. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I know that they are... There, that is a big part of what they're doing. Obviously, is trying to protect people from that. And um, as I understand it, part of their methodology is: let's say I'm buying something from you, I place an order on the website, takes my credit card. You don't get the money until the product that you ship to me, that you're selling me, actually arrives to me, the buyer. And at that point, it gets the money gets released to you. But it's, so they're kind of like an escrow holding company for the funds. Well, they're, but they're I no not actually have the money, but you it. don't get it. Right, but but they're not actually holding the product in escrow uh, and inspecting not the product, and, but they're holding the funds yeah. in escrow. Right, right, right. right. No, it's, you know, I don't think there's any way to 100% avoid the potential of online fraud um, unless I guess you are both holding both the gear, the equipment, and the money in escrow. But that seems a bit um, a bit much. But uh, right, but right. anyway, so it just seems it's a new thing, relatively new. I think they just launched late last year, and uh, just got introduced to it today, and been checking it out, and wanted to see if it's something you had uh, heard of yet. I, I hadn't, but uh, I, you know, I do have a bunch of gear here that I need to sell. I, I've got a. Well, see, I, there's always in, that, right? I got a great, uh, you know, Canon uh, EF 24 millimeter f 1.4 version two lens. Um, that uh, that's a nice lens. It is a nice lens, uh, and I rarely ever used it because I, I thought I would go one direction into landscape photography, and I went the other into macro, and uh, I, I used it for some things. I've used it on a, an occasional video shoot here and there, which I can use that Viltrox 20 millimeter lens as a, as a surrogate for it, um, but <laughs> the... Uh, yeah, that uh, Canon 24 mil, um, it's got to go at some point. And if uh, somebody wants it, uh, either contact me uh, through the podcast, <laughs> or maybe you'll find it on this website. I think you should. I think you should list it. I will. I got the box and everything. That helps keep the resale value up, I think. Um, all right. Well, that uh, that winds down our picks of the week and the show. Uh, where can people find you online? Your wonderful YouTube musings, your photographs, your online presence. Where is it at? Everything is at Photo Joseph. So the easiest uh, for YouTube, of course, just go to YouTube, type in Photo Joseph or YouTube.com slash Photo Joseph. Photo Joseph.com will show you everything. Photo Joseph on the Instagram, Photo Joseph on the Twitter, Photo Joseph on the Facebook. It's uh, if I'm out there, it's Photo Joseph. All right, Photo Joseph, thank you for being on this episode of Photo Geek <laughs> Weekly. Uh, and thank you to everybody that's been listening. It has been a great conversation. Your feedback is always welcome. Uh, post that as a comment on the website. Send me an email, start a dialogue. If anything in this conversation struck a chord with you. And uh, with everything said and the conversation complete, it's time to stay in and shoot. Mm -hmm.